Well, good evening, everyone. I'm uh, excited to be back in Genesis 3 uh, with you all as we continue to consider the events of the Garden of Eden. If you'll just bow with me in a word of prayer, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we exalt you and lift you up, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us tonight and open our eyes so we can behold wonderful things from your word. Amen. Um, So if you weren't with us last time, we began this study of what I'm convinced is one of the most important and one of the most defining chapters in all of Scripture. Um, There's profound theology in this chapter, and Lord willing, we'll look at some of that. There's also a lot of very basic, very elementary um, Christianity 101, uh, really the ABCs of the Christian faith in this chapter, the foundations of what we believe Uh, The kind of thing that many of us might have learned as children or learned when we first became Christians, that we should never think of ourselves, uh, think ourselves above relearning or reconsidering afresh. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, So I I really believe that if we can understand Genesis 3, we can properly, or we have a foundation to understand um, properly the world, to understand the rest of the Bible, and to understand ourselves particularly the great problem that we all have and how God is the solution to that problem. Uh, In fact, you'll see I've entitled the message, um, Your Biggest Problem and How Not to Solve It. Your Biggest Problem and How Not to Solve It. Uh, I understand that there are many problems, hundreds, maybe thousands of problems that people face throughout their lives. Um, Many of you know that I work on an ambulance. And what that means is that my job security depends on you people having problems. So, so I, thank you, I thank you all ahead of time, um, whether those problems are medical or traumatic or psychiatric. Um, so we have health problems. Another common difficulty that we all, difficulty that we all have is um, financial problems, financial problems. Uh, sometimes that means we don't have enough money But I think if we were really honest, uh, we would have to admit that it often comes from mismanagement of our money, and uh, our problems come from mismanagement. Others of us have varying degrees of problems in our relationships uh, with our families, whether it be with our uh, marriages, with our children, or our parents. Um, But what I hope to show uh, from our text, in spite of all these problems that we have, what I hope to argue from our text is that as it was true for Adam and Eve, so it's true of us um, that we really have one singular ultimate problem. And it has nothing to do with our health. It has nothing to do with um, our finances. It has nothing to do with the hurt that comes from the relationships that we have. Um, And this is our main point for today, uh, that your greatest problem is your sin. Your greatest problem is your sin. Um, And I really love just how simple the message of this text is uh, it's very profound, but it's also very simple. And I think that the, the simplicity of, of it is what's so profound. So your greatest problem is your sin, and there's only one way to solve it. Your greatest problem is your sin, and there's only one way to solve it. And so we'll look at sin in this passage tonight in three phases. Uh, the allure of sin, the act of sin, and the aftermath of sin. And that's where we'll look at how not to solve the problem in the aftermath. And hopefully we'll end tonight on the one solution to our problem of sin. And so just to establish a little bit of context, if we weren't here last time, if we weren't, um, 
in our last message in the first five verses. Uh, before chapter 3, we established in Genesis 1 and 2 that the creator of the universe and everything in it is a holy, powerful, wise, and self-existent God. A holy, powerful, wise, and self-existent God who created everything from nothing. Sometimes we like to think of ourselves as creative, but we're, really we're just rearrangers of things that already exist. Um, but God created the entire universe out of nothing, simply the word of his mouth. And after creating and filling the universe, God rested from his work, totally satisfied with what he had created, and he declared it all to be very good. And the crown jewel of his creation was us, man and woman. Um, we are a unique creation of God um, that he designed in a special way, in his own image, in his own likeness, to reflect his glory in a way that other creatures cannot. And he placed them, the two, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them the responsibility and the privilege of exercising dominion over the earth. And so not only does he give them this privilege and this responsibility, but he provides for them. He fills the garden with fruit trees for them to eat from, with the exception of one. He forbids them from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which uh, we looked at last time in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. In fact, if you want to turn there real quick. Um, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So he forbids them from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to remind them that God is God and that they are not. And to remind them that their rule over, their, uh, their, their rule over creation is not ultimate. That God has supreme authority over them, over, their, over them as their almighty creator. Which brings us to Genesis 3, where last time we were eavesdropping on the conversation between the serpent and the woman. Uh, the serpent, we were talking about last time, uh, the rest of the Bible identifies as Satan, the adversary of God. And he initiates the conversation with the woman, subtly suggesting that God is less than good and that his word is less than trustworthy. Um, Genesis 3, 1 reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman responds in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And so last time we talked about how in her response, it seems on its face like a noble response, a uh, reply to the serpent. Um, but the very fact that she engaged the serpent and um, we saw last time that she subtracted from, she added to, and she softened God's word. She's really indicating that she's wavering in her submission to God's word, and she's wavering in, in her confidence in God's word. And so finally, in verses 4 and 5, the dialogue crescendos to its conclusion, and the serpent tells the woman a lie. It's a blasphemous and dangerous lie with two parts, a lie that we're still believing today. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And so the first part of this lie is that she can disobey God with no consequences, no judgment, no punishment. The serpent, in effect, calls God a liar, um, that she will not die. The second part of this lie was that eating the fruit would make her like God, specifically giving her moral autonomy. And we talked last time uh, that this is what we still do, this is what we still believe when we sin. We sin as if there's not going to be any punishment, and when we sin, we're deciding that we are going to decide what's right and wrong and not listen to, not listen to God, uh, not defer to any external uh, moral authority, much less submit to one imposed on us by God. And this is what we believe. We believe that we can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. And with that lie, the conversation ends. And for the time, the serpent vanishes from the scene and we're left alone with the woman. And so we're going to get to first the allure of sin, the allure of sin. I'm just going to read our text for us tonight in full, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what I hope for us to see here, first of all, is that sin is deeper than our actions. Sin goes deeper than our actions. In this verse, it becomes clear that for the woman, the fall has already taken place. Um, the woman, by coveting the fruit, by disregarding God's clear command, and by rationalizing her disobedience, she's already sinned in her heart before she can take her first breath or her first uh, bite of the fruit. And she's decided that the God who made her and provided every good thing for her to enjoy and have dominion over, the God who made her for intimate fellowship with himself is less trustworthy than this serpent. So when the, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, good for food, uh, she looks at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sees that it's good for food. She sees it and thinks to herself, hey, I'm a physical being with physical appetites and physical needs, and that fruit is going to satisfy those appetites. This is her first self-justification for her sin. I'm hungry, and it'll satisfy me. Never mind God, never mind all these other fruit that he's given me. I want this one, and that's all that matters. I mean, immediately we see this in our own lives as well. How often does sin take this form in our lives, bodily, physical gratification that holds out the promise of enjoyment and satisfaction, but the pleasure of it is over in, in moments. There's a, free, a threefold dimension of sin here that's introduced to us in our passage and is later defined for us in 1 John 2.16. If you want to turn with me there real quick, um, that we're going to be coming back to this verse because it really is just crystallized in our passage. 1 John 2.16. In fact, I'm going to actually start reading at verse 15. Verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And so we see here in the first, um, we see here in, in verse 6, the first of these three, the desires of the flesh, because she saw that the tree was good for food. She desired it because she believed that true satisfaction would come in satisfying her bodily appetites. She doesn't stop there, though. Um, it isn't enough that the tree was good for food. Uh, she does what we all do, and she adds to the list of ways that she can benefit from sin. We make our, uh, this is what we do. We make our pros and cons lists, and somehow we're always able to convince ourselves that there are more benefits to sin, that the positives outweigh the negatives. So what's the second appeal of the fruit? It was a delight to the eyes. Continuing in verse 6, and that it was a delight to the eyes. So this is the second dimension of sin in our categories of 1 John, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the eyes. There's an aesthetic appreciation and a visual attraction about the fruit that was intoxicating to Eve. It appealed to her sense of beauty, which sin often does. And the longer she looks at it, the better it looks. The longer she looks, the better it looks. Uh, turn with me real quick to Exodus 20. Um, it's one book over in your Bibles, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus 20. This is the law, so this is uh, the Ten Commandments. It's a ten-point summary of the whole law that God gave to the Israelites after liberating them from their bondage to the Egyptians. And in the last of these ten, verse 17, God's people are prohibited from wrongfully desiring anything that is not rightfully theirs. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is what's happening in Genesis 3 for the first time. Uh, she's looking covetously at something that she has no right to, that she has no rightful claim to. Um, and this is often where we put ourselves in sin's radius in our own lives. We, are, we allow our eyes to roam and to wander until we fixate them upon things that we shouldn't be. And we're captivated by it. Uh, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's teaching on the extent of sin. 5 verse 27, you have heard it, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So sin is clearly something that happens in our heart before it manifests itself in our behavior. And so she's looked at the fruit with covetous eyes, and really she has already eaten of it in her heart. She's the prototype of living by sight and not by faith. And as God's people... We need to be more intent and we need to be more cautious about the things that we allow into our mind through our eyes or even our, our ears for that matter. Well, the things that we consider to be beautiful. Um, we need to be very, very cautious with, with those things. Um, we need to make this verse in Psalm 119 our prayer. Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So sin has manifested itself in the woman's heart in the desires of the flesh, in the desires of the eyes, and now finally in what 1 John calls the pride of life. The pride of life. This is the third facet of sin, um, her final justification in her own heart. Um, and what is the pride? What is pride? Uh, pride is self-exaltation. Uh, we should be God-exalters, but really when we are prideful, we are self 
exalters, and that's exactly what Eve is doing here. Um, continuing in verse 6, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She wanted knowledge. She wanted understanding. She wanted wisdom. And so here is where she believes wholeheartedly that eating of the fruit would make her like God, that it would open her eyes and make her like God. She wasn't content with the capacity for wisdom that she was already given as one of God's image bearers. Um, she wanted to go beyond that. She wanted to exceed that, to surpass that. She wanted to be like God. And her motivations are essentially identical to the motives of Lucifer, um, which resulted in his expulsion from heaven in Isaiah 14. Notice how many times it says, I will here. Notice how many times it says, I will. You said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the It's self-will, self-exaltation. And this is what was so sinful about her desire. It wasn't merely the desire for wisdom, which is a good thing in itself, but it was the desire for a wisdom that would make her God's equal, which is foolish. And we just have to, we have to repeat this to ourselves. There's only one. Isaiah 46 rings to this uh, God questioning rhetorically, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Remember this, in verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And so in Eve, we have the first example of wrongly pursued wisdom. Wrongly pursued wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 tells us what rightly pursued wisdom looks like. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Had she pursued wisdom rightly, she would have feared God, and that fear would have expressed itself in obedience, not disobedience. But instead, she sought wisdom not by obeying God, but by disobeying God. Not to glorify God, but to rival Him. She sought for wisdom not in God, but independent from God. Not to exalt God, but to exalt herself. And she's not the only one, is she? Romans 1, 21 and 22, classically, is a, is a commentary on this prideful human wisdom. 21 for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And Paul, even in 2 Timothy chapter 3, talks about those who are always learning, in verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is so true of the society that we live in too. We pursue, we, we try to get God out of our, out of our government, out of our academic institutions. Um, we have no shortage of accredited, accredited universities and PhD programs and institutions and scholastic fellowships, and yet we're tripping over our own feet over elementary things like gender. Um, uh, 
This is the, this is the pursuit of knowledge apart from God, independent from God. And we've become a society of fools with degrees. Fools with degrees. You want true wisdom? Fear the Lord and know the Holy One. And you know what that looks like? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him every day of your life. And I just want to say by way of encouragement to those who might not think yourself, uh, you may not think yourself to be wise because maybe um, you didn't go to college or you don't have uh, higher degrees or you don't have um, what you think is a, is a significant uh, career. I want to tell you that in the end, those things don't matter. Because what good is all the knowledge in the world going to do you in hell? Really? And what good is all the education and all the intellectual sidestepping and all the academic achievements? What good are those going to do you if in the end you go away to eternal destruction? And what good are those things going to be to God if on the last day to the very end you rejected his son? On the other hand, if you stand in awe of God's holiness and consider what a sinful person you are and you fear him and you know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a wisdom that is truly wisdom because it comes from God and not from this world. This is the wisdom demonstrated in faith and obedience. And it's this wisdom, true wisdom, saving wisdom, that the woman did not choose. And so we're moving into the act, moving into the act of sin. So she's ready. She's considered the options. She's made her pros and cons list, which oddly enough has no cons. Um, she knows what she believes, and she's ready to act on that belief. Verse 6 continues, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So the sin of her heart has become the deed of her hand. The internal Reality of sin has manifested itself externally. The invisible sins of pride and covetousness and unbelief are now visible. She's crossed the line. She's transgressed God's clear command. She's committed what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. And evil has entered into human history as the woman becomes a sinner. I like what Matthew Henry comments on this passage. As was the, as was the devil, so was Eve no sooner a sinner than a tempter. She sins, and before, I mean, look at verse 6 again. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. In other words, she sins, and before the sentence is even finished, she's enlisting the participation of her husband. She's in very dangerous territory, because our Lord says in Luke 17, 1, to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Well, we're always going to exert some kind of spiritual influence on other people. And you don't want to compound the severity of your sin by being the reason that somebody else sins as well. Um, you've heard the old saying, misery loves company. Well, sin loves company too. Sin is like a cancer that is not content merely to destroy one part or one function of the body, but it metastasizes to all the other parts of the body wreaking havoc everywhere it goes. It cannot, un, not just sin, unrepented sin. Unrepentant sin cannot be contained or domesticated or tamed. It's never content to remain what it is. It's not a, merely a static reality that stays the same, but it's a dynamic force. 
Um, it has to spread and develop and blossom and, uh, blossom and unfold and multiply. Consider the life of King David and the infamous sequence of sins that eventually led him to write Psalm 51, the great psalm of repentance. So David falls idle. His armies are out in battle, and he's not with them. He's just home. He falls idle. He sees a woman, a beautiful woman, bathing on her rooftop, and he begins to covet and lust after her. And that lust matures into adultery, And after taking her for himself, he conspires to have her husband, who, by the way, was one of his loyal soldiers, uh, he conspires to have him sent to the front lines so he could be killed. And then, for about a year or so, he doesn't confess to God, doesn't repent of his sins, he just shoves it under the rug. It's quite the sequence. It's quite a few links in this chain of sin. Now, can you imagine David at the outset saying, you know, I'm just going to lust a little bit and seeing how well that would have turned out for him. Foolishness. I remember as a kid um, being read the book, some of you might remember, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk. Uh, And that's what happens when you open the door to sin and you have unrepentant sin in your life. You give it an inch and it takes a mile. And before you know it, you're on a roller coaster without any breaks. I wish we could say that it ended with Eve. But we have three last catastrophic words of verse 6. And he ate. And in three words, the entire human race is plunged into sin, into corruption, depravity, guilt, and death. And so the man finally makes an appearance. An entire conversation is happening with the serpent and his wife. Uh, unbeknownst to her, where God's character is being assaulted, and she's under spiritual attack, and he's nowhere to be found until now. And when he finally makes an appearance, not only does he uh, allow and approve Eve of eating the fruit, but he participates with her. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul's laying out for the, how the church is to be ordered. And he reminds Timothy, uh, Timothy in verse 14, if you'll turn there real quick, 1 Timothy 2, Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Adam was not deceived. His sin was not done in ignorance. Uh, If your Bibles are still in um, Genesis 3, if you have your finger there, look back for a moment at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. I'm just going to go over it real quick. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So he named and cataloged all the species of the animals, all of them. And so there's no way he would have recognized the serpent, uh, much less one that would be throwing this shadow on God's character and integrity. And so, and on top of this, we need to remember that God actually gave the command directly to Adam, not Eve. This isn't to excuse her. This is just to say that Adam's sin was willful, fully informed disobedience against much greater knowledge. This was an act of pure rebellion. Pure rebellion. So why did he do it? Well, I'm convinced strongly that he did it because of the apparent lack of consequences uh, of his wife's disobedience. Because she did not appear to have died when she ate the fruit. Um, And so he thought to him, I'm sure he thought to himself, well, if she didn't die, surely I'm not going to die. 
And if she's going to benefit from this sin, I'm going to get some of that too. And so it's been said that Adam or Eve listened to Satan, Adam listened to Eve, and no one listened to God. The record of this event, which has such far-reaching personal and cosmic consequences, is given to us in such matter-of-fact and undramatic language. And often to us, sin does sometimes seem uneventful, undramatic, insignificant. But mark it down. The reality is grave. And that every sin, regardless of how big or small you think it is, is a shocking act of violence against God's holiness. And there's no small sin because there's no small God to sin against. But why is Adam's sin particularly significant? I mean, Eve ate of the fruit first, didn't she? Yes. Um, but if you'll notice, if you've been reading your Bible for any amount of time, you'll notice that the New Testament uniformly attributes the responsibility of the fall not to Eve, but to Adam. Adam's sin is directly connected to us. There's a, in other words, there's a direct relationship between Adam's sin and every single person who's ever lived after him, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand that relationship, turn with me to Romans 5. Romans 5. Uh, I believe that this is one of the most important passages that we're going to look at outside of our text. One of the most important passages we'll look at outside of our text. Uh, I'm really convinced that this is the lens through which we have to understand Genesis 3. The parallel is being uh, drawn between Adam as the representative of fallen humanity and Christ as the representative of redeemed humanity. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. <clears throat> but the free gift is not like the trespass. For, and note here, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free, free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For, note again here, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, here it is again, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as, and here's, here's it for the last time, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So when Adam sinned, not only did he become a sinner, but the corruption and the guilt of that sin, both of those, the corruption and the guilt of that sin, would be passed down to all of those whom he represented. He involved all of his descendants in that sin. This is what we call original sin. Um, original sin is not the first sin that happened. It's the fact that we now, by nature, are sinners. We have a sin nature. We aren't 
sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, because that's who we are. Um, it's the age-old question that philosophers, apart from God, cannot answer. Are human beings good or bad? They just can't seem to decide. Well, the Bible says that by nature we are evil because of sin. Ephesians 2 is a classic text on this. I'm just going to read it from verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Speaking to Christians and speaking of who they were before Christ, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Adam and Eve did in fact die when they ate the fruit. Their physical deaths, of course, were postponed, but they died spiritually the moment they sinned, and every human being who has ever lived, with one exception, inherited that sin nature, that spiritual death which is why every human being needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, why they need to be born again, why they need to be raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ. Because before Christ, we are dead in our sins and we are by nature children of wrath. And it began with those three catastrophic words of uh, the end of verse 6, and he ate. And so that brings us to the aftermath of sin, the aftermath this, uh, in reality, the remainder of this chapter, um, the remainder of the book of Genesis, the remainder of the Old Testament, the remainder of the entire Bible, and the remainder of human history until the new heavens and the new earth is the aftermath and the fallout of this sin. Verse 7 reads, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they did not appear to have died. I mean, physically, they are still alive. And now their eyes were opened, which Satan did tell them would happen. And they, in fact, had a newly acquired knowledge of evil that they did not have before. The couple was changed, but not for the better. Their eyes were opened, but not how they expected. Because they knew evil through their guilt. Through their guilt. They knew evil through guilt. Ironically, their knowledge of good and evil made them less like God not more like him. And the difference between their knowledge of good and evil and God's knowledge of good and evil is this. God knows evil only as a spectator, as an outsider, as an external observer, someone who knows evil for what it is because he's an entirely good and pure being. On the other hand, Adam and his wife now know evil by experience, by participation in the evil and becoming acquainted with the guilt and the shame that comes with it. It's the difference between the, the knowledge of cancer that an oncologist has, someone who specializes in cancer uh, treatment, treating cancer patients. Uh, they know uh, cancer as, uh, as an outsider, as an observer, as someone who is trying to treat and kill that cancer. Um, but a termini terminally ill cancer patient has a very different knowledge of the cancer because it's, it's inside him, it's in its body, it's a part of him or her. And this is how their eyes are opened. And this is, again, the subtlety of Satan, because his most effective lies are half-truths, half-truths. Because he did say that their eyes would be opened, that they would know good and evil. Uh, and he did tell them that they wouldn't die, which physically they did not at the time. Um, and this is why I'm so convinced that 
Satan is not behind uh, things like atheism and, and Satanism. I think that's just human foolishness. I think Satan is most busy in those places that claim to be places of true religion, places that talk about the Bible, that talk about God, that talk about faith. Um, but really, there's, a, there's just one lie that destroys the whole gospel. I'm really convinced that Satan is most in the business of telling those half-truths. He told Eve that their eyes would be opened, and so they were. And our, our attention returns to their nakedness for the first time since the end of Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked. I mean, hasn't it occurred to them this whole time that they weren't wearing clothes? Um, the simplest answer is, now they're naked in a new way. They're naked in a new way. Uh, they're naked in a way that's invisible to man, but visible to God. Not only were their bodies exposed, but now also their sins are exposed before God. Um, in fact, not only was the uh, visible sin of eating the fruit exposed to God, but even the invisible sins of covetousness, pride, unbelief, those things God can see just as well. And that's a reminder for us, too, that God sees the sins of our hearts, uh, not just the things that we do, but the desires of our heart as well. Um, they were naked and they were guilty, and they knew it. They knew that they were guilty. This is what we call the conscience. It's the capacity uh, that we have to evaluate the morality of our actions and of our motives. And so this, con this awareness, this, the co their consciences, are alerting them to the wrongness of their actions and to God's righteous displeasure. God's righteous displeasure. It's the knowledge of sin and guilt that we all have, despite our efforts to um, suppress that knowledge and shove it under the rug. We have that sense. We have that sense. But what do we do? Do we confess and repent of those sins? Um, or let me make this more personal. Do you confess and repent of your sins? Have you looked to God as a solution to this, the great human problem of sin? That's not what Adam and Eve did, unfortunately. In the last section of our text, it shows that they looked not to God for the solution, but to themselves. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The shame that's now associated with their nakedness has compelled them to seek covering. And so they cover their bodies with these fig leaves. So what do we make of this new need to cover up? Well, for the first thing, there's this new element of estrangement in human relationships, in their, relationships, uh, their relationship with one another. Um, human relationships, and particularly marriage, should be marked by knowledge, intimacy, trust. But instead, instead, they feel the need to cover themselves and hide their bodies. This is the beginning of distrust, disunity, and dysfunction in all human relationships. And this is, and this is something we all experience, breakdown in the relationships that we have with even people that we love. Um, this is a universal product of the fall. But even more significant than their estrangement from one another is their estrangement from God. Their sin has separated them from God. And knowing this, they decide to cover their nakedness, thinking that it will also cover their guilt. This is a foolish thing, because God is all-seeing, 
all-knowing. There isn't one particle, there isn't one atom in the whole universe that God cannot see. And even with these fig coverings, they are no less naked now. They are no less naked than they were before. It's a pathetic non-solution to their problem. It's the height of foolishness, and really this is the essence of all unbiblical religion. Um, I think it's interesting to note that the, the universal presence of religious practices shows that deep in, deep in our hearts, human beings know that we have a problem with sin and we're trying to cover those sins. And we're trying to deal with it ourselves. And this is exactly what all man-made religion is. It's the belief that your own efforts are sufficient to cover your sins. It's your vain attempt to do so. And so what do we do? We, we do all sorts of things. We go to church. We get baptized. We go to confession. We make a pilgrimage. We build a temple. We make sacrifices. We give to the poor. We uh, try to be good people. All the while believing that these efforts and these performances will make us good enough for God. Believing that they will be enough to cover our sins and adequately deal with our guilt. Uh, during the holidays, I like to watch Home Alone 2, um, which is uh, lost in New York. The, there's a scene with the main character. He's talking, this little boy is talking to this woman, and, and she says to him, Did you know that a good deed covers up a bad deed? That's exactly what Adam and Eve are trying to do here in Genesis 3. This is exactly what we all do. Everyone's trying to cover their sins and their, and their guilt. So we, we just throw on a few fig leaves and we think that's going to solve the problem. Church, that is exactly how not to solve the problem of your sin. That's exactly how not to solve the problem. Your own efforts, your own performance, your own good personism is not going to solve the problem. So mark it down. I'm going to tell you today that there is only one thing that will cover your nakedness, one thing that will cover your sin sufficiently, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is only one thing that God does not see. I'm not saying he cannot see. I'm saying he does not see, and that is your sins when they are covered by the blood of Christ. Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among, among men by which we must be saved. If every person who ever lived were to believe in Jesus Christ, his blood would be sufficient to cover their sins and then some. And make no mistake, there is a day coming when you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And when that day comes, you don't want to stand before God naked in your guilt and exposed in your unrighteousness. And you certainly don't want to stand before him in the fig leaves of your own religious performance or your own so-called good life, because that is a one-way ticket to hell. And God has already said beforehand that that is not going to be good enough. You want to stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You want to stand before him with your sins covered by his blood. It is a covering that is not achieved by human effort or accomplishment, but it is to be received through repentance and faith. 
And so if you believe that simply being a good person will be good enough for, for God, I call you right now to turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you right now, you must be born again if you are to see the kingdom of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And he has said, whoever, whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for making the ultimate sacrifice for us and for the provision that you've made to cover our sins, uh, that you didn't even withhold your own son, but gave him up. And he gave himself up willingly, going to the cross to suffer your wrath for our sins. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you have not given us what we deserve, but you've given us what we do not deserve, which is grace and mercy. And so, Lord, as we um, consider uh, the, the sin at the beginning of history, Lord, help us to think about our own sins in our lives, um, that even as believers, that we would not try to cover up our sin, but that we would be ready and, and quick to confess and repent our sins and to lay ourselves bare before you. And, Lord, we, we know that we are confident that what we will be met with is a God who is eager to forgive us. May it be so in our lives. Amen.